All right. So today's afternoon, uh, this afternoon's um, talk is about doing the right thing the wrong way. And it's really about partial obedience. And I think sometimes as Christians, it's um, easy to kind of come to the point where we want to do the right thing, where we want to give our lives to God. Um, and the tendency is to do things part of the way. And then there's that part where the surrender gets very difficult, and it's easy to kind of back away from that and say, okay, I've gone this far, but I'll give you part of my heart, God, but maybe not all of it. And uh, I think that's a challenge that I struggle with, and as I was thinking through it, I thought maybe there's some things in uh, the story that I want to cover today in the Bible that's relevant to to us all. Um, there was this one afternoon uh, that I went mountain biking, and I, I, I enjoy mountain biking, and I come from Seattle, and we have uh, the Olympic Mountain Rangers. We also have the Rocky Mountain, uh, Rocky Mountains, and we also have a really big mountain called Mount Rainier. It's actually an active volcano, and it can erupt at any time. And if you go to the Mount Rainier National Park and you look at the little model, it shows where all the lava would go uh, if it ever did erupt. And I'm happy to say that uh, my suburb is the only safe suburb all around Mount Rainier. And so, anyway. Um, there are a lot of mountains, that's my point. And so uh, one afternoon I decided I'm going to go mountain biking. And uh, usually they say if you're going to do an activity like that, go with a friend. Because if you get hurt, at least somebody can help you get back to the car. I chose to go by myself and I, I went up the hill. And um, in Seattle there's this trail, or there's this mountain called Tiger Mountain. And basically you hop, hop on your mountain bike and you go uphill for about two hours uh, maybe two and a half hours, and it's just straight uphill. <laughs> and so it traverses, and by the time you finish uh, the ascent, then the rest is just downhill all the way to your car, and it's just nonstop downhill, and it's just some of the best trails that I've ever ridden on. And so I got to this portion of the trail. I had ridden on it before, and I thought pretty, I felt pretty comfortable. And uh, there's this one part of the trail where uh, there's a tree and there's a drop-off, and there are some roots, but the roots kind of spread out through the path. And so if you want to clear the roots, you have to jump far. And it's not a long drop, but it's a far jump. And so you have to get going pretty fast, catch your momentum, and you really have to commit to the jump. Otherwise, you're going to hit a tree root, and then bad things happen. Well, I'd been riding on this trail, and I thought, okay, just this once, I want to hit this jump because I'm, I'm going to feel like I accomplished something this season. I feel like I conquered that portion of the trail. And so I hopped on the bike, I hopped off of the bike, I checked out the jump, and I was like, okay, I think I know how fast I need to go. Hopped back on the bike, and I tore down the trail, and at the last minute, I chickened out and I hit the brakes. And here's what happened. I was already too committed to the jump to not go on the jump, but I was not committed enough to where I was already in the air. And here's basically what happened. I'm on my bike, and I can see the roots, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to clear the roots. And uh, my feet slipped off of the pedal. And so I've got my mountain bike in between my legs, and my feet are not on the pedals anymore, and the bike hit the ground, and basically I straddled my bike. <laughs> and so... I straddle my mountain bike, and the bike falls under my legs, and 
and I've cleared the roots now. Like the roots are gone, but there's this, you know, the trail is really well groomed, but there's this one rock in the middle of the pathway. And it's just kind of like half in the dirt and half sticking out. And it hits my clavicle. And uh, basically, I just kind of landed. And I just had to sit there for a while because there was just pain coming from multiple parts of my body. And I thought, oh, this feels terrible. <laughs> and so after a few moments, I kind of realizing, all right, I think I'm alive. I think I'm going to make it. And I get back up. I check my bike. It's fine. And I thought, I'm going to go do it again this time. I'm going to make sure I clear the jump. And I cleared the jump the second time. And, and everything was okay. I mean, everything's working in, in proper order. And I didn't, didn't need any medical attention. But I got home, and there's like this massive gash in the middle, middle of my chest. And so what I learned is when you're going to take a jump, you have to fully commit to it. Because if you don't commit to the jump and you go halfway, you're going to hurt yourself. Um, Strangely, like a, a, a month ago, I went riding with James, and I did almost the exact same thing on a jump. But anyway, um, this is a lesson that takes time and effort and uh, repetition to learn. And so that's my, uh, that was my introduction to uh, half-hearted mountain biking. Now, there's a story of a king named Saul. And uh, he's a very well-known king in Israel. And uh, in the Old Testament, it kind of shares of his, the beginning of his reign as king. And he kind of goes into this, and there are portions of his actions that come across as half-hearted obedience. He's given specific instructions from God, and he kind of just goes partway in, and we're going to look at this. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you can um, turn with me or open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, and we're going to start in chapter 13. And I'm going to do my best to uh, cover a, a lot of information in a short period of time. Um, we're going to just be covering chapters 13, 14, and 15. And if you have time on your own uh, after after the service is done or if you've got a free moment um, just throughout the day and you'd be interested in checking the story out, I highly encourage you to read the story over for yourself because there's lots of interesting bits that I'm not going to be able to cover. So Saul has just been uh, anointed or appointed king of Israel. And uh, right from the bat, there's kind of an anomaly in the text. So if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 13 and you read verse 1, it says, Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned and two years over, uh, over Israel. And so if you look at that first verse, it actually doesn't tell you exactly how many years Saul has reigned. And this is across the board in the text. And... Uh, yeah, people have kind of wondered, why isn't there a specific number there? And if you look at the original language, um, there is a noun for one and two. And uh, basically, it's translated years, but it's just basically two. But it's impossible that Saul was two years old when he reigned for Israel, or reigned over Israel for two years. And so, anyway, there's a lot of speculation over that. Basically... The incompleteness of this text kind of reveals a little bit about how the author feels about Saul right from the get-go when you get into chapter 13. Um, and so Saul has just, he's kind of like a, a new king. He's getting used to small victories. He's just fought a great battle. And um, I believe he's just conquered the Amorites. And uh, the Amorites have kind of uh, sieged a city, and Saul came with the Israelites, and he freed them. And so this is the second story of 
Saul as king. And how it introduces the story is that Jonathan, his son, has just conquered um, a Philistine outpost. And just to give you a little bit of a, a geographical um, breakdown of what's going on here, you have the Philistines in this area, and they're kind of, uh, they have, they are like the most powerful pagan nation around Israel. And as Israel is a very much a, uh, kind of a weaker nation, the Philistines have been uh, colonizing, or they've basically, Israel has become tributaries to the Philistines. And they have this, the Philistines have this outpost here in, okay, this, actually, Giba is like right here. And um, basically, they have um, a small military unit there. And Jonathan basically takes around 600 men. He attacks the unit, and um, basically, he wins the battle. And so, uh, Jonathan and Saul, in this story, are currently uh, near Giba, um, right here. And what happens is the Philistines hear that the Israelites are starting to make make war with the people, or they're starting to cause trouble uh, with, with them. And so what, what the Philistines do is they send 60,000 chariots, they send, they send 6,000 horsemen, and they send uh, foot soldiers, and the text says that they are, uh, the number is as vast as the sand on the sea. And so they have lots and lots and lots of soldiers. And what they end up doing is Philistine, the Philistines send a group to uh, this area right here. And actually, let me see if I can find the text. Um, if you go down to verse 13, it says at the end of chapter 13 that they send the troops into three different areas. It says that the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in verse 17 in three companies. One company turns towards Ophrah. Um, actually, this is a bad map, sorry. Basically, it's this area, this area, and this area. And the Israelites are right in the middle. So basically, uh, the Philistines surround the camp of Israel, and this is kind of how the story is introduced. Now, what I want to highlight in this story is Saul's response to uh, the Philistines surrounding him and his soldiers and his son is that Saul is very, very much afraid. And I can actually kind of understand how Saul is feeling at this point in time. His son has just attacked a Philistine garrison, Basically, the whole nation of uh, Palestine has come out, and they are trying to get rid of this uh, group of rebels. And basically, Saul is instructed by God's prophet Samuel to stay put for seven days. Now, understanding Samuel's role is really important in this story. God had appointed specific individuals to be his mouthpieces throughout the history of Israel. And at this point in time in history... God's chosen vessel or God's chosen individual is a man named Samuel. And so whenever there's a revelation, whenever there's instruction, whenever there's commandment, God speaks to Samuel and he says, Samuel, you go tell so-and-so what needs to be done. And in this particular case, uh, Samuel comes to Saul, the king, and he says, you need to wait for seven days. I'm going to come to you and I'm going to give you advice as to what's supposed to happen. Now, if you read in the story, we are in verse 17, but we're going to backtrack just a little bit. Here's what happens. If you look at verse 8, it says that Saul waited seven days for the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Oh, excuse me. It was Actually, they moved from Geba to Gilgal. To Gilgal, Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, 
bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, basically he says, I gathered the people together and then I, I offered the sacrifice. And so Saul has this moment of insecurity where he's worried, oh no, the soldiers that are with me, they're scared out of their minds, they're running into the caves, they're kind of, anytime there's like a little crevice or a hole, if they see it, they're kind of running and hiding in there, and he's thinking, this is not a good way to fight a war. And he's wondering, what should I do? And Samuel's advice to him is, wait, and I'm going to come. Now, here's the challenge. Saul offers this sacrifice, and normally sacrifices are good because sacrifices communicate uh, one's commitment to God. It it communicates somebody acknowledging God in their life. Uh, It acknowledges when a person has sinned, they are seeking the forgiveness of God. And it's basically generally a good thing. It's a religious service. It's something that connects connects, uh, uh, a fallen human to an infinitely powerful, merciful God. And so when Saul does this, Basically, you would think this is a good thing. Now, in the story, as soon as Saul finishes offering the sacrifice, the Bible says that Samuel comes on the scene and he asks him, what have you done? And he basically rebukes him. And basically, the judgment that's given to Saul is Samuel says, listen, the kingdom of God would have been, or excuse me, the kingdom of Israel would have been, uh, would have been in your lineage and you would have created a dynasty and it would have lasted forever. But because of this one mistake, your kingdom, your dynasty is going to be given to another. And so when I read this story, I kind of ask myself the question, why is the judgment so harsh? Because Saul actually fulfills his end of the bargain. He waits seven days. He's supposed to wait for Samuel. And Samuel, I think he actually comes a little late. And I don't know if that's on purpose or not. But regardless, Samuel doesn't fulfill his end of the bargain. And he's thinking, I have to offer up this sacrifice. Because in Saul's mind, he's thinking the sacrifice is what's going to bring courage to the people. And they will feel that God's presence is here. And so it makes sense that Saul did what he did. And so why does Samuel judge him so harshly? Now... Like I had mentioned before, understanding Samuel's role is really what unlocks the mystery to this story. Back in those days, whenever Israel would make a decision, we're going to go to war, it wasn't actually left up to the king to make that decision. In every other nation, the king is the one who makes the decision to go to war. It's kind of like the king is like the president of the United States. He is the, um, basically he's the, the arm of the military when he says we're going to go to war that's when well at least in america that's when people go to war and so i don't know if you saw just recently obama kind of walked up to the mic and he basically said we're gonna bomb isis and so it's basically he has the right to do that because he's the president now if you look at saul he kind of thought i have that right but in this particular context he doesn't have that right it's Samuel's decision. Well, it's ultimately God's decision, but it has to come through Samuel. And so when Samuel said, you have to wait, I'm going to come, and then we're going to consult God, 
what they were supposed to do is not offer sacrifices. What they were supposed to do is ask God, should we even be going to war? Or are you going to provide a different way out? And Saul completely doesn't even think of that and just says, we have to go fight because in his mind, that's the only way out. And when I look at uh, Saul's response, it's so human because whenever the circumstances get difficult, like my tendency is to figure out what can I do to get out of this mess? What can I do to get out of this situation? Now, Saul's decision is offer sacrifice, raise hope in the camp of Israel, and go fight. And Samuel is thinking, you are raising false hope. That authority is not yours. It's mine. And what Saul does is he usurps the authority of God, and he takes that role. And that's why the judgment is so severe. I want to read a few things that take place here. When Samuel, and if you want to follow along here, I'm just going to narrate here. Uh, when you look at the conversation between uh, Samuel and Saul, and you read from verse 11 uh, all the way until verse um, 15, it kind of shows the conversation that takes place between Saul and Samuel. Basically, Samuel rebukes him, and Saul realizes that he has allowed the circumstances to overtake him, but he doesn't admit to his sin or his fear. And so there is this sense of uh, uh, maybe a lack of responsibility is one way of putting it. Another way of putting it is that he's not repentant. And Samuel looks at this and he's thinking, you're not being genuine with your mistake. Who knows what would have happened if he would have turned around and basically confessed and said, I did mess up, I'm sorry. And that actually never happens. Um, And so this action kind of reveals, this partial obedience reveals the intent of Saul's heart. And his partial obedience, his uh, sense of not willing to submit to authority and usurping God shows that, um, yeah, maybe he's not ready to be king. If he's not ready to listen to the mouthpiece of God and the prophet of God, maybe he's not willing to be king. And here's the interesting part of the story. Samuel had already anointed Saul to be the next or to be the king of Israel and what he was communicating to Saul is there's going to be a point in time where I'm going to die and pass away and you are the next spiritual leader of Israel and so you have to cultivate this understanding of how to submit to God directly and so Samuel was kind of the training wheels for Saul while he was learning how to be king and what happens is Saul doesn't learn how to ride on training wheels and Samuel basically says your family cannot hold the lineage of the kingdom of Israel And so uh, that's basically what takes place. There's a text in the Bible that I want to share with you. It's in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It goes like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and he will make straight your paths, or he will guide and direct your paths. It's the most difficult thing to say, God, rather than my way, you choose your way, and you make a way out of this difficult situation. Saul never gets to the point where he can say, God, you have your way. Rather, he chooses, I'm going to have my way, and he uses a religious right to get his own way. I remember while I was uh, growing up, um, I had just gotten into a car accident and I I wrecked my friend's car 
And basically, he had a he had a pretty nice car. It was like an it was an Integra Type R. And back in the U.S., that was like the car to have because、um, we don't really get Japanese cars.、Uh, nice Japanese.、Oh, hold on, I need to. We don't. We.、Uh, it was a car that was rare. <laughs> and basically,、um, my friends and I had this retarded.、Um, Tradition of basically allowing our best friends to drive our cars when we got new cars. So as soon as you get a new car, you go to your friend's house. Hey, you gotta drive this, and then you drive it. And so、uh, when I got my first car, I let my friend drive it, and he drove it right into a tree.、Uh, when my friend got his car, I drove his car and got into a car accident. And so I don't know why we kept doing this, but anyway,、uh, you would have you would have thought that we would have stopped at one. But、um, so、uh, yeah, I had wrecked my friend's Integra Type R. And they took it to the car insurance company, and it was this massive bill. And、uh, basically, I had to now face his mom, who was in charge of the finances, right? And I was like, "I will pay back every penny, I promise." <laughs> and back then, I was a teenager. And、uh, basically, I'm stuck. I'm strapped with now. I owe this family money, and I just felt this strong sense of responsibility. I have to take care of this. I have to take care of this. And so,、um, I remember. Working at a car wash place, and it was eight hours a day of washing cars. And then at night, I would take night classes, and、uh, that was just—I don't know why I chose to do that, but I thought, oh, having a paycheck is nice. And so,、um, yeah, at that period of time in my life, I would work eight hours and then go to night school. And、um, what ended up happening is, the amount of money that I would make was never enough to pay off all of the bills and take care of. The things that I wanted to do, and so I kept asking myself the question: How am I going to take care of my bills? How am I going to take care of my bills? And one time,、uh, I had a、um, a Mormon friend who started working with me, and he's like, "Hey, you know, like my my church runs this、uh, summer summer、uh, job for young people, and basically you go door knocking and you sell home security systems. And some people are making like fifteen grand like a summer.、And、I thought fifteen grand a summer—that's awesome. And back then." I think I was making like eight or nine dollars an hour or something like that, and I thought that was awesome. And so, anyway, I think, oh man, that's sweet. And it was at this time where I, I had just started really learning what it meant to be a Christian. I really wanted to give my life to God, and、um, yeah, it's kind of it's interesting how、uh, when you have trauma in your life, it really makes you turn to God for help. And that was kind of what was <laughs> that was kind of what was happening for me. And so. I have this Mormon friend. He's a really nice guy, and he's like, "Yeah, if you want to do it in the summer, I'm going to do it." And I thought, "Yeah,、um, hey, just one question. Look,、uh, like、uh, I'm a Seventh Day Adventist, and I, I believe in keeping the Sabbath day holy. Like, is it okay if I don't work Saturdays, and can I just put an extra time on Sunday?" Well, his particular church they don't work on Sundays, but they work really hard on Saturdays. And so he's like, "Well, let me let me ask the recruiter and see what he says." So he goes and he asks the recruiter, comes back and he says, "Listen." I'm sorry. You you actually you have to work Saturdays if you want this job. And I thought, like I can't work Sundays. He's like, no, you can't work Sundays.、And、I was like, well, how am I going to pay my bills? Like I have no idea how I'm going to do this. And so, basically,、um, I just thought about it for a moment, and I was just like, okay, well, I can't do that. And so that was kind of like I'm banking on this selling home security alarm systems door to door job, and that kind of falls through. And I'm like, how am I going to take care of my bills? And so.、Um, What ended up happening is I just I was like, well, I'm gonna keep asking God for help, and I'm just gonna do what 
he wants me to do. And so um, that, it was at that point in time where I started reading the Bible and just following different principles. And um, one of them was, uh, was a financial principle. And uh, there's, this, uh, there's this text on something called tithing, and I'll, I'll share it with you. It's uh, found in Malachi chapter 3, and it's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. And the text goes like this. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And I remember there was an elder in the church who shared this text with me, and he shared a whole Bible study with me, and I thought, wait, you're telling me that you want me to give 10% of my money to God and he's going to pour out a blessing that's going to overtake me? And I thought, come on, man. Like, this is such prosperity gospel stuff. And, and then and he's like, no, no, this is, this is a principle in the Bible where God is saying, test me. And this is one of the very few times in the Bible where God says, you test me out and see what happens. And I thought, well, if it doesn't work, God is not real. And so this is, this is a very easy test. And so... I think to myself, I'm going to try it out. And so each week, the offering basket would come around in front of me. And before, I'd put like, I don't know, like a dollar or something like that. Like, I've done my good deed. And then the, 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 the offering basket moves on. And this time around, the offering basket came, and I had a check in my hand that was 10% of my paycheck. And I've got this debt that I owe to somebody else. I have my bills that I have to pay off. I have my credit card bills. And I'm thinking... This is actually really hard. Like, I don't want to put this paycheck in the, in the offering basket. And so, like, the basket's coming slowly. I'm thinking, no, I don't want to put it in there. And I'm kind of holding it, but it's kind of burning in my hand, you know? And by the time the offering basket actually gets to me, I'm like, I don't want to do that. And then I just put it in there. I'm like, I just put it in there, and I can't grab it back out. Otherwise, that looks really dodgy, right? And so... <laughs> put it in the offering basket and it moves on and I think what have I done like I've just given away 10% of my life and um, yeah so uh, while I started spending more time at church um, I was like well I want to help out wherever I can I started driving the young young kids around to, to different afternoon activities and uh, one one afternoon an auntie comes in she like shoves something in my pocket and then walks away really quickly that was the weirdest thing that has ever happened. I was like, what just happened? And I reach into my pocket, and there's this envelope in there. And I pull out the envelope, and there's this card that says, Dear Roy, thank you so much for your help. Here's a little bit of money to help you out with your gas money. And it was like, um, it was a significant amount of money. And I thought, I haven't even done anything. And then I thought, oh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. I was like, it works! And so I take 10% of that money, and the next time the offering basket comes, I'm like, <laughs> something's going to happen! And basically, in a matter of like three years, like my debts actually started getting paid like quite significantly. And there, there, were, there were times where there were like thousands of dollars where people were saying, uh, Roy, we actually we just want to help you out with with where you're going in life. We know you're kind of strapped for cash, and we just want to show you that we um, we support you. And I, I just kind of I was kind of blown away. And this is you know for for a teenager who's making like pennies, like thousands of dollars is huge. And I remember the last the last thing that happened that really got me out of debt was. Um, Basically, I, I used to drive my dad's uh, Hyundai Accent around, and it's this tiny white car, and it's, it's a clunker, basically. <laughs> but it gets good gas mileage, and so I thought, ah, oh, cheap to run. 
And uh, there was a point in time where I was uh, basically doing some Bible work, and I parked the car on the side of the road, and I went door knocking in the neighborhood. And, you know, some people kind of turn around to check if their car's still there. I never looked at my car, never looked at my car, and basically went door knocking. And um, after the day was over, hop in my car, and I'm driving, and there's this piece of paper that's flapping between the windshield wiper and the windshield. And I was like, what is this? And so I pull the car over, and uh, I reach around, and I grab the piece of paper, and it says, to whom it may concern, I'm sorry I ran into your car. I actually live across the street. I didn't see your car there, and I own a truck. And basically, I was like, somebody ran into my car, and I just had no idea what happened. And I hop out of my car, and it is smashed. I mean, it's like the driver's side front fender is like, bent in so far from a bird's eye view, I can see the tire, the top of the tire of my car. And so if somebody was driving by, they would have seen like this guy kind of like grabbing his hair like, what happened? And uh, basically the person goes, here's my insurance company. Uh, here, here's my insurance number. Um, here's my phone number. Call me back and let's, let's organize something. So um, basically everything said and done, I had, uh, I had a certain amount of money that was that was left that I owed, and that wasn't to any particular person. It was basically to a school that I had gone to. Um, and basically, the amount that uh, it would have cost to fix the Hyundai Accent was the exact amount that I owed to this school. And um, I remember having the, the, the check in my hand thinking, man, I cannot believe out of every single way that I can possibly think of to get out of debt, it was somebody running into my car. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> like, and, and it was good for two reasons. One, because I was debt-free. Two, because uh, people started avoiding me on the freeways because <laughs> they saw that uh, my car is like, kind of smashed, so they probably thought, oh, I need to avoid that car. And so like, I didn't really have to worry about traffic that much. And so it was kind of, there was always like a, a bubble, a sphere around me when I would drive. And so what, what I realized from that situation is, if I would have put in extra time or overtime at work or whatever, taking the other job, like I don't actually know how long it would have taken me to, to get out of the financial problems that I was in. But when I just said, God, you have certain promises that you promise to fulfill in your word, and I'm just going to take you at your word, God actually makes a way to um, gain freedom but the most difficult thing is actually submitting to what God asks us to do. And that's kind of one of the biggest challenges because in, in Saul's case, he's surrounded by enemies. Like it makes sense to fight, not to pray, right? And so it's kind of this counterintuitive thing. He has to sacrifice the potential risk of losing his whole army and he has to risk losing even his life because if they attack him and Samuel has not come yet, what's going to happen to him? And so, um, yeah, same with our current life situations. Basically, the circumstances, when I read through the Bible and when I think about my own life, the circumstances are very rarely completely ideal for complete success. There is usually always one barrier or a major challenge that's going to take place that causes us to ask God for help. And I think those challenges are there to help us experience God. The second occurrence is in chapter 14. Now, what ends up happening, and I kind of want to look through this with you. If you look through 1 Samuel chapter 14 in the very next chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 14. 
what has taken place is Jonathan once again, Saul's son, takes his armor bearer and uh, basically they're kind of waiting on what's going to happen and they're kind of sitting around and Jonathan goes as armor bearer and he's like, we're going to go start this war. And Jonathan is kind of like a loose, cal- uh, loose cannon as I read through um, this story. But if you follow with me in verse 6, Jonathan says to his young man or his armor bearer, let us go to the garrison to these uncircumcised. And it's kind of like a, he's making fun of them. Um, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, he's a loose cannon, but he's also kind of this young man of faith. He's like, God can save us by just a couple people, or he can save us by many people. Let's just go, and let's see what God has in mind. Verse 7, it says, His armor bearer says to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. I'm with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan says, Behold, we'll cross over to them, uh, to the Philistines, and show ourselves. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. And that will be a sign to us. Now, if I were the armor bearer, I would be thinking, those are your scenarios. It's like fight or fight. (laughs) It's like, okay, it's like. You ever play heads or tails with somebody and they're like, heads I win, tails you lose? And like, aha. Well, that's exactly what this is. <laughs> and he's thinking, if they tell us to go up to them, which is the harder way, then that's the sign that God wants us to fight. If I were the armor bearer, I'd be like, you're on your own, man. But the uh, basically the armor bearer goes up with Jonathan. And the story goes, the Philistine garrison says, you come up to us and we're going to fight you. And so Jonathan and his armor bearer, they go up, and the, the language in the text is very interesting. It says uh, the, the cliff is actually so steep that they go up hand and knee. They, they go up on their hands and knees. It kind of reminds me of the uh, hike that we did like uh, <laughs> just a few days ago, actually. If you want, ever want to climb up uh, the cathedral ranges with your hands and knees, follow <laughs> Daryl and Brunwyn. <laughs> anyway, um, so... Jonathan and his armor bearers are going up. And, you know, this is kind of, this is not really a textual thing. But uh, one time I heard somebody say, like, you really see uh, the modern version of prayer where you get on your hands and knees and you're really supplicating yourself before God. And, look, I don't know if that's exactly what it's saying, but I just find it interesting that they have to climb up this hill uh, on their hands and knees. And it basically shows that there is a degree of difficulty, yet there's a degree of faith that's going into this action. So the story goes, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they wipe out 20 people in the first uh, little section of land that they arrive on at the top of the, at the, top of the cliff, and uh, they are fighting this battle. And the text says, as Jonathan and his armor bearer are fighting, God sends this earthquake, and the earth begins to shake, and then the Philistines begin to attack each other, and there is just mayhem that is taking place. Now what happens next is Saul looks and he goes, who, who in our camp is missing? He finds out it's Jonathan and, and the armor bearer. And he, what he does next is he goes, call out the priest and bring out the Ark of the Covenant because we need to ask God whether or not we should go fight in war. Now, this is kind of interesting. So Saul has almost learned his lesson, right? Now he's going to consult God and ask him, should we go fight? 
regardless of the fact that his only son or his one of his sons is fighting and risking his life. But he's like, I have to pray and ask God, what should I do next? And there's almost this act of piety that's taking place. Now, the true revealing of this act isn't revealed unless you read verse 1 in chapter four, uh, 14. Um, so if you, or excuse me, uh, verse 3. Now, with Saul is this man named Ahijah, and the author goes into great detail to give the lineage of Ahijah. And uh, basically, in verse 3, it says, Ahijah is the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. And so there's a man named Ahijah who is of the lineage of Eli, um, the former high priest of Israel. And this Ahijah has he is in possession of the Ark of the Covenant. And it's like the most sacred relic that Israel possesses. And so what's unique about this family lineage is that uh, Eli's family actually uh, experiences a lot of sorrow in the book of 1 Samuel. And if you read through the first three chapters of 1 Samuel, um, Eli has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they are wicked priests. Like, they're going, stealing sacrifices from people when they shouldn't. They're fornicating with women when they're just doing bad things. And Eli never disciplines them. And so God uses Samuel, his chosen prophet or his chosen mouthpiece, to communicate to Eli, the high priest, hey, God is judging your family, your sons are going to die, and basically you are losing the priesthood. God is not going to use your family anymore. And what ends up happening is that both Eli's sons die. When Eli hears about it, he falls over backwards, and he's he's so overweight, it breaks his neck when he falls backwards. And basically, there's just this very sad story. Now, what happens is Eli has this grandson, Ahijah, and Saul has said, Ahijah, I want you to represent God for me. But if you look at the story, God has actually rejected the family of Eli, and he's picked Samuel. And so there are two questions that somebody should ask when looking at the story. One, why is Ahijah with Saul? Two, why isn't Samuel with Saul? (laughs) And so Saul has this partial obedience of, God, let me ask you now, should I go to war? When in reality, he's asking Ahijah as opposed to Samuel. So he's only partially kind of committing, and at the same time, he chooses not to do the right thing again. And so the question is, why does Samuel do this? And I suppose it's because the first time when Samuel gives judgment upon Saul, he feels guilty because he's thinking, I've just lost the whole kingdom, and because I've lost the whole kingdom, how can I ask Samuel to be my prophet again? And he doesn't like being rejected, and so he actually doesn't have Samuel stay in the camp, and he picks this guy, Ahijah, who's been rejected, or whose family has been rejected. It's the hardest thing to understand the judgment of God. And in the Bible, as you really study and learn about judgment, it's supposed to be redemptive. It's supposed to be something that saves you rather than something that punishes you. And Samuel really, or excuse me, Saul really has this skewed picture of what God is really like. And as a result, it causes him to have to do the right thing have to do the wrong thing. And so uh, there's this text in the Bible that I want to share with you. If you look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 
it reads, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I know there have been many times where I've goofed up, where I really felt a sense of guilt. And I don't know about you, but when I feel like I've done something wrong, especially to somebody, my first response is not to go up to that person and say, hey, do you want to hang out? Or, hey, um, let's be buddy-buddy. Usually you have to kind of reconcile, or sometimes the relationship needs time to heal, or whatever it may be. And so oftentimes when I would goof up, there would be moments where I really felt bad to go ask God for healing or forgiveness or for help. And yet, in this text, it says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And there's this text is communicating, God is always proactively seeking reconciliation. But in Saul's shoes, he feels so bad about what he's done in the past, it causes him to more failure. And he never finds... Uh, security in God, even though God wants to give him that security, even though it comes in the form of judgment previously. Here's the third, uh, well, before I go into the third point. Um, For some reason, what I find is, when I have done something wrong, if I choose not to confess it, it usually makes the relationship more stressful And the times where I address it immediately and I say, hey, look, I'm sorry I did this, and I'm genuine about being sorry, what I find is the other party is actually kind of, they usually just say, oh, you know what, don't worry about it, like, it's all right. Like, there have been times where uh, I'm carrying, like, a whiteboard in somebody's house and their wood floors, and I drop the whiteboard and there's, like, this gouged out hole in the the wood floor. I mean, that costs money to fix, right? And, And the person's not at the house, like, they've just trusted me with their keys and whatnot, and I think, okay, do I just... Do I put, like, tape over it and maybe, like, just kind of color it brown or what should I do? And what I find is, like, I'll go to the individuals and say, hey, listen, I actually dropped something in your house. I'm really sorry. And, you know, like, you tell me what I need to do to fix it. And they're just, ah, don't worry about it. Look, it it happens. Like, sometimes that happens. Uh, One time uh, I was driving on the road, and I have a bad habit of speeding. I don't know if this is, like, a a secret. Um, In the U.S., we don't, we don't really use speed cameras so much as we use real live police officers. And the nice thing about having real live police officers is sometimes you can ask for forgiveness, right? And one time I'm driving and there's a motorcycle cop and he's just, he's just sitting right at the corner where it's too late to see him. And you know, it's a turn. You have to go fast, right? That's what turns are for. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm apexing this turn and I'm coming out of it and there he is. He just, and I'm thinking, oh, I know I've, I know I'm speeding. And so I just pulled right over and I was like, and then he, like, I saw him check his gun and he was about to holster it and then get on his motorcycle. And as he was holstering it, I pulled over and he was like, ah, just go. And I was like, yeah! And there was, there was a sense of I was confessing, it's my fault, I goofed up, and he was like, I forgive you. <laughs> you can't do that with speed cameras here, it's anyway. Um, so here's the third, third, part, uh, third instance of partial obedience. In chapter 15, so 1 Samuel chapter 15, and let me get back there. Saul has already been judged that he would lose the dynasty, um, he would lose his dynasty, and in chapter 15, um, the judgment becomes more severe where Samuel actually tells Saul, you are going to lose uh, 
your right to be king. And in this story, um, if you look at verse 1, if you want to follow, I'll just narrate. Samuel comes to Saul uh, a second time, and he basically gives him um, direction from God. And God specifically tells Saul, go fight the Amalekites. Now, God sending Samuel to talk to Saul is very important for a couple reasons. One, it means that God has not completely rejected Saul. Because if God had rejected Saul, he wouldn't have communicated with him at all. And so there is an act of mercy where God is saying, Saul, you are still my appointed person. I am asking you to do something for me. And whenever God asks um, an individual to work for him, there is a sense of connectedness where God is saying, I'm not rejecting you. I'm not just using you. This is a chance for you and I to uh, reconcile. Uh, the second reason why this is important is because God is still acknowledging Saul as king. He hasn't rejected him as king, and so this is kind of like, who knows what will happen if Saul does the right thing. And so Samuel's instruction to Saul is, go fight the Amalekites, but here's the condition. You have to wipe out everything. Every living thing that the Amalekites have, you need to wipe it out. And what happens in the story, if you, if you read along as I narrate, Saul and his men attack the Amalekites, and it's interesting, um, at this point in time, Samuel has won different victories, even though he's given partial disobedience, and uh, because of his victories, he has this army of like over 200,000 soldiers, whereas at the beginning of our story, he only had 600. So it kind of goes to show he's kind of gaining some momentum as king, even though spiritually, he's not doing well. And so it's kind of this interesting lesson of uh, Saul's success, Saul's professional success as a king is not reflective of his personal spirituality as an individual. And so anyway, uh, Saul and his army of 200,000 people surround the Amalekites and uh, they destroy the Amalekites. And as they're going through the plunder, they see all these really good sheep and oxen and goats. And they realize, you know what? this would be great to keep some of this stuff. And they decide, we are going to keep it. Not only that, the Amalekites have a king, and Saul keeps the king alive. And the text doesn't say exactly why he keeps him alive. He just keeps him alive. And as they're coming back to Israel, God speaks to Samuel, and he says, Saul cannot be my king anymore. There's too much partial obedience, and because of the partial obedience, you need to go judge him and basically tell him he can no longer be king of Israel. And so uh, this is what takes place. And so when you look at the conversation between Saul and Samuel, and, and, the, and the text goes actually, Samuel pleads for Saul all night long. And you really get a picture of Samuel's heart. He doesn't just want to be upset with Saul. He doesn't want to just yell at Saul for his uh, mistakes. He actually pleads to God on, on the behalf of Saul. And he's saying, God, please, please, please forgive this individual. And God basically says, listen, he's not going to turn around. He can't be king anymore. And so if you read on in verse 17, he says, and this is his judgment, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners of the Amalekites. Fight against them until they are consumed. And then he asks them, why didn't you obey? And here's Saul's response, verse 20. 
I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone to the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And so now Saul is kind of blaming the people for taking the sheep. And then he kind of says, so that we could offer sacrifices to your God. And he doesn't even acknowledge God as his God at this point in time. And so he's almost kind of placing some of the responsibility on Samuel. And so you really see very little remorse that's taking place in Saul's heart. And this really breaks the heart of Samuel. And basically he says, you're not going to be king anymore. And Saul comes and he begs Samuel, please, please, please come back with me and at least worship with me in front of the elders of Israel. And he basically says, I'm sorry, but can you make me look good in front of all of my leaders? And Samuel, because he loves Saul, actually goes with him and worships with him. It's a very, um, you really see the heart of, uh, of, of Samuel working here. So I just want to point out a few things. In the first instance, uh, Saul gives partial obedience but really he's just using religion as a way of manipulating God to get what he wants. And that partial obedience is really selfishly motivated. The second occurrence where this takes place is Saul uses false piety by using this false priest um, rather than seeking Samuel. And it's also reflective of what he really wants. And basically he's using false piety to make it look like he's being holy. And it's really very self-oriented. In the third sense, or in the third occurrence of uh, Saul's partial obedience, um, basically there's this idea of um, basically he's prioritizing the people, uh, the people's needs, and usually that's a sign of holiness and righteousness. Look, I'm doing what the people want, but really who knows what he would have done with the animals and who knows what he would have done with, the king, with king Agag uh, if uh, Samuel wasn't actually there. This partial obedience really leads to, really, it's just disobedience. There's this one line here that I want to share with you. Um, Because Saul had failed to accept the structure of authority laid out to him by Yahweh, um, basically, it's just a reflection of, of Saul seeking out his own desires. And if he could have found his rest, if he could have found his rest in God, it would have given him the motivation to be able to see his own selfishness, and at the same time, perhaps it would have changed the destiny of his family lineage, and perhaps it would have changed his own destiny. And really, the story of Saul is quite quite sad. Um, and sometimes the Bible gives us stories of encouragement. It gives us stories of what we should do. And sometimes the Bible gives us stories and examples of things that we shouldn't do. And in this one case, it's an example of something that we shouldn't do. Um, But in closing, what I would like for us to do is just listen to this song. Uh, I found this song to be very, very appropriate. And in your own difficulties, in your own challenges, in the moments where you feel like the circumstances are against you, um, it's my prayer that you can find your hope and your deliverance in God. And may you find that rest. And um, yeah. May we experience, may we not experience what Saul has experienced.
Father in heaven, in our moments of insecurity, in our moments of fear, in our moments of pride, we pray that you would deliver us. We pray that you would allow us to taste your goodness, 
that we would experience the freedom. And Father, in the challenge of surrendering our own way and taking yours, Father, may we learn to grow. May we learn to be able to trust you more consistently. And uh, as a result, Father, may we really experience you in our lives, uh, that your glory may be shown. And so, Father, be patient with us. Give us strength. And Father, at the same time, give us victory, we pray in your name. Amen.